0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the glorious opportunity to gather with, your, uh, with our beloved brothers and sisters in Christ and to open the word together and to share in the means of grace that we might grow and be conformed to your image. We thank you for the dear saints around the world that listen. We pray for them as well, that you would feed them and help them find the remnant in their area, that they could gather together and pray together together and open the word together. We lift up these two that are battling with cancer that are our members. We pray that you bring healing to them. And Father, we commit this morning to you and prepare our hearts as this is Communion Sunday. We're looking forward to receiving communion and contemplating what you've done for us and proclaiming your death until you come. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay. We are in 2 Corinthians, and we're on verse 14. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 14. Well, let me start with verse 13, so we start at the beginning of the sentence. But having the same spirit of faith according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing, now here's the reason knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. So, as we discussed uh, last week, this knowing and speaking, believing and speaking, I mean, was a a citation from the Psalms. And it was in a, a, a Psalm where David was under much affliction and had many difficulties in which he... Was going through that he had uh, that he had to endure, and in the midst of his afflictions, in the midst of his many difficulties, David still believed. Okay, and his faith, his body may have been buffeted, and his friends may have turned against him, but his faith was not shaken. So he spoke his that he believed in the midst of his afflictions. So Paul is taking that and saying. That he is doing the same thing, that he continues to preach the gospel even though it's under assault and affliction and many batterings, but he speaks because he believes. And what he speaks is, continues to speak, is the gospel. Then, uh, our verse, knowing, okay, so he has a, an eschatological basis for his faith and his speaking. And his eschatological basis is. His knowledge that the that fact that Jesus was raised from the dead is proof that the, the promise of the general resurrection at the end of the age, and particularly of the resurrection of believers at the Lord's return, is also true. So, since the Lord in history, um, he who raised up Arist in the Greek, point in time in the past, he raised up Jesus then the future He will raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. So there is an end times gathering together. There's a resurrection and a gathering together. All the saints, those who are alive, will be caught up and transformed. The dead in Christ will rise first. And all believers will ultimately be gathered together when the Lord returns and will celebrate the very supper of the Lamb. Okay? And that is the promise that, that we have. And that, by the way, we're having, we're having communion today, so be thinking about that. I always mention it when I read the verses for communion, but there's an eschatological promise lying behind Christian communion because it says that when we receive uh, communion, the Lord's Supper, we make a proclamation. See, here it's talking about believing and speaking. Okay? So this, the act of receiving communion in faith is a proclamation. Uh, Rick has something here. Oh, okay. And so, Rick, uh, I'm sure you'll have something later, right? <laughs> <laughs> he's, thinking of, he's thinking of something. Okay, anyhow, this, uh, it says we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. And so it, this, this is a, there's a lot of shorthand in the Bible. When it talks about the Lord's death as pro, 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 proclaimed through the Lord's Supper, it's talking about the saving event. Like when we use the word cross, it can be used as a metonymy. A metonymy is a, point of, a, a, a figure of speech where you use a part to designate the whole. So when we use the word cross... It could mean the actual literal cross Jesus died on, because in the Bible it says that he carried his cross, and then they got the guy uh, uh, Simon yeah, to carry it for him. So it could be talking about the literal wood cross. But often in the New Testament, it's talking about the event. Okay, so when Paul says that he preaches the cross, what he is referring to is the entire saving event, the person of Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross, his shed blood, his bodily resurrection, and all the promises that are associated with that. That's what he means when he uses the word cross. It's shorthand. Okay? Or a metonymy. So when it says we proclaim the Lord's death, we believe and therefore we speak. We're studying, for those of you who just got here, we're on 2 Corinthians 4.14. So this proclamation... Uh, There's a Greek word, kerygma, that that theologians like to use. But this proclamation of our hope is based on our belief that the saving event of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection is efficacious for believers. That He has washed away our sins, that He's made us His his, uh, body, and that He will, in the future... Gather us together and raise as we're raised from the dead and gathered together as his body. So that's all involved with proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And be thinking about that because that's exactly what we're going to do today. So knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also, future, at the end of the age, raise us up with Jesus and present us with you. So there is. Uh, uh, this is introduces, by the way, a theme that's going to run on all the way into chapter five. He's going to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. If this earthly house is torn down, we have one, a future home. You know that we not, might not be unclothed, but clothed. That goes on in Second Corinthians chapter five. Well, I have some cross references. Um, Rick, if you could do Isaiah 26:19. Um, let's just do a little bit in the second row here. I'm branching out. See, everybody thought they were safe. It's, it's, now you now you got to go back more than two rows to get safe. Cat, um, if you could do John 11:25 through 27, and Brian, Romans 8:11, and Diane, do you have a or Paul? Do you want to do the reading? One of you, you guys can decide between yourselves. Okay, Paul. <laughs> 1 Corinthians 6:14 and Tom, uh, 1 Corinthians 15:20 through 22, and Dina, Ephesians 5:27, and Sam, Colossians 1:22. Okay, uh, Isaiah 26:19.
1: Your dead shall live; together with my dead body, they shall arise. Awake and sing you who dwell in dust for your dew is like the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead
0: now that's isaiah 26 now the reason that's a, uh, uh, an uh, interesting cross-reference for our passage about the shoes of resurrection is it shows that it was taught already in the old testament that, see that isaiah 26:19. there's there's the resur- the fact that the dead will be raised And another passage in the Old Testament that teaches a general resurrection, both of the righteous and unrighteous, is Daniel 12:2, I believe. Daniel 12:2. So it is taught in the Old Testament, although it's not as clear. I mean, there there is such a thing as progressive revelation from Genesis on through Revelation within the Bible, not beyond the Bible. And so, you know, the teaching of the resurrection is a lot more focused in the New Testament, but it's not totally absent from the Old. Okay, um, John 11, was
2: John, that it? Yep, John 11, 25. Yes, uh, 25
0: to 27.
2: Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world.
0: Wow. Yes, Lord, I believe. that's a great passage. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Amen. Okay, and then um, Romans 8:11. Okay, Romans 8:11.
1: But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells
0: in you. Okay, so there's the teaching of the resurrection in Romans 8. Romans 8, by the way, is talking about future resurrection and glorification, mm-hmm. not. Um, the Latter Rain movement came along in the 40s, and they claimed that, the, that rather than talking about resurrection in Romans 8, is talking about some elite group of Christians that were going to arise and become the manifested sons of God. Okay, and the, of course, this group that taught that claimed they were it. Okay, they were the manifested sons of God. But that's really, the sons of God here is not just talking about some elite Christians, it's talking about all Christians. And they will be manifested not in history, but at the end of the age, at the resurrection. Because remember, um, well, I may have that somewhere, one of my cross references. but First John says that we'll see him as we'll be like him, see him as he is, so it's in the future. Okay, uh, I keep forgetting this. Then it was one Corinthians six fourteen.
1: Uh, yes, one Corinthians six fourteen, and God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by His own power.
0: Amen. And then uh, one Corinthians fifteen twenty to twenty two.
1: But now Christ is risen from the dead, and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so, in Christ all shall be
0: made alive. In Christ all shall be In Adam, here's this federal headship uh, idea. If you were at the outreach, uh, Mark Orlean preached the gospel powerfully there, and he, he was actually talking about federal headship in his evangelistic message. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, in Adam all die. What does that mean? Yeah, that that proves Pelagius wrong, right there. Pelagius says that um, humans are all born perfectly sinless and innocent, and they only sin when they choose to, and then they can quit sinning when they choose to quit. Okay, so that was yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Anybody tried that? Well, we would like to quit. Uh, And the Lord helps us. Now, when it says, in Adam, all die, I can show you why it means federal headship. And that's a valid biblical doctrine. Because it also says, in Christ, all are made alive. Now, is that teaching universalism? In other words, does every last person who died in Adam also come alive in Christ? We don't believe that, do we? We believe you have to be saved and uh, uh, born again before that's true, that you'll be raised unto glory. I mean, everybody will be resurrected, but some unto damnation and some unto salvation. So here is, and this is also found in Romans 5, very important doctrine. In Adam all died. That means that Adam's sin was imputed to the entire human race. All right, and that we were sinners the moment we came into this world now uh Phil Johnson has written some nice uh stuff on this on the on the one of his websites sherry is she here? I don't see sherry. she's probably oh there you are <laughs> getting coffee gotcha you 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 emailed me some Phil Johnson articles about Finney being a plagian, yeah. Okay. Well, anyhow, so if you want it, you have to have Sherry an email it to you. <laughs> she probably has a bookmark. Anyhow, Bill Johnson was pointing out how uh, Finney denied this doctrine in the same way that Pelagius did, and Phil was pointing out that Pelagia, Pelagianism was condemned at more church councils than any other doctrine. All right, and, and it was a battle uh, in the early church, or in the early uh, centuries of the church. Now, here's how we know this is the case. And I remember debating this even in seminary because a lot of the students didn't get this. In Adam, all die. Now, if you look at the uh, Adam-Christ analogy in Romans 5, it's used to teach the imputed righteousness of Christ. All right. And so for the analogy to hold, Adam's sin is imputed to all those who are in Adam. They sin because they're in Adam and they sin because they're sinners. Both things are true, it's not either or. But then all those in Christ receive his righteousness and they live. Okay? Now, the only difference is how you become in Adam and how you become in Christ. That's the, the difference, alright? And this is what solves this keeps saves us from universalism. The way how do you become in Adam? You're born. How do you become in Christ? You got it. Very astute. (laughs) Okay? Very astute. And you're doing better than a lot of those seminary students were when we discussed this. Now, um, so there's the idea of federal headship. And so in order to escape the situation that we were in in Adam, we must flee to Christ and be born again. And then we're in Christ. So that in Christ, all are made alive. That is, all who are actually in Christ. So Dina, the uh, whatever, what was the passage?
2: Um, Ephesians 5:27. Okay. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, and having spot, and not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and without blemish.
0: Yeah. So that the church will be presented holy and blameless because of God's work in Christ. And that won't be perfected until the end of the age, but the process is already going on. It's an already-not-yet thing. We're being sanctified now. We have blemishes. We're not perfect. But in the end, we'll be presented to Christ holy and blameless. Yes, Sam.
1: In the Catholic Church, in the Catholic world, they believe that the Church is the Church, they're not the body. Like, we, we know it to be true. So... If they go along to to the scripture and they say that the church will be presented blameless, what happens to the Catholics? What happens to the Catholics? Ah.
0: Well, you know, Luther claimed that God had a very small remnant even in Rome that had been believed in spite of, well, if you listen to Luther, he he has some strong words. Yeah. (laughs) you know, since, I don't know exactly what he said. In spite of the devilish, satanic people, whatever—that's what Luther says. Okay. In spite of that, there are some who believe. And so, though, if the, if that's the case, if there's a remnant within Rome, and there likely is, to so an essence, so in essence yeah, the, Though believers. that remnant will be a part of the body of Christ or the bride of Christ, because God will gather everyone, every even remote. Uh, there may be. Believers that are in places where they don't even know other believers, but they'll all be gathered together and then we'll know the visible church, totally perfected and holy. So in essence, it's the believers. It's that, yeah. And in theology, we have the concept of the visible church and the invisible church and the, in, the term invisible Maybe a little misleading, I kind of have a, I don't know if it's a debate or what, there's a guy from India emailing me and I can't tell if he's mad at me or, or he just likes to talk theology, I don't know. But uh, he wanted to debate on this topic. Well, I said, well, the, he wanted to know Ephesians 4 applies only to the invisible church. In other words, it says that we might come to the unity, or the, you know, the whole thing, that Ryan preached on it. I said, well, ultimately, yes. It's going to be the true church that that's true of, that we won't see until it's gathered at the Merry Supper of the Lamb, and then then it'll be visible to all. Now, then he he said, no, that can't be possible because God's grace has to have some sort of effect in people's lives. It's seen, so it's not invisible. Well, okay, let's look at it this way. The term invisible church also can be used in connection with the idea of the church militant and the church universal and triumphant, right? There are those still on the scene of history who are the lords that are in the battle. And there are those who are graduated. All right. Now, so uh, in Hebrews, it talks about this church of the firstborn, the myriads of angels. You've come to, you know, the spirits of just men made right. Remember that passage? Well, none of that's visible to us. We can't see the saints in heaven. And the other thing that's not totally visible to us, only uh, by I'll get to you, Coralie. Sorry, I got on another topic. Uh, um, is within the mass of the visible church, of all the people that say, I'm a Christian, professing believers, There, we don't know who, the, who are the lords. So we can see evidence of regeneration, the signs of regeneration. But in any church, even in a church, let's say like John MacArthur's church, where you know the Word is pure, purely taught and things are done the way, you know, I believe he has a very biblically oriented church. There are probably people in his church that are saved. Amen. Amen. And, and we won't know. And there are always people who are willing to follow the moral guidelines of the Bible. And, um, and I think the Reformers call it live a scandal-free life. And they belong to the church and they maybe are yet not regenerate. So when when I'm using the term about the church militant, I mean that within the bigger body, whoever is truly the Lord's are the ones who ultimately be perfected in the end. Anybody who's not truly the Lord's, they won't participate in that. Okay? And so the fact is, yes, you can visibly see things change in people's lives. You can see people delivered out of sin... You can see people growing in the grace and knowledge of God, and you can see evidence of the fruits of the Spirit. So that part isn't invisible. All right? So it's tangible and it's real. Uh, So I'm just trying to clarify the categories that we use. Okay, Carly. Well,
2: I was just going to comment in your reference to Ephesians 1, or whatever it was, and it's one of my favorite verses about okay. being holy and blameless before the Lord, uh-huh. that he's able to make us holy and blameless. That's the most remarkable news. That's the good news <laughs> for sinners such as I. Um, but I was going to comment because you were going on elaborating that we're in a process of sanctification, which is absolutely true uh, in a practical sense. But positionally, which is what much of Ephesians, I think, refers to as our position in Christ, spiritual yeah. position, Yeah, that's in his eyes, we are actually holy. now um, yeah. uh, holy and blameless in his sight. And then I thought of 1 John 1, 9, that when we confess our sins, he, he um, forgives us from all unrighteousness. So in, in his eyes, when all sin, is conf- knowing, sin that we know about in ourselves is confessed, we are considered actually positionally either way considered holy and blameless in Christ because yes we are other
0: than I would, I would be, we got to be careful it isn't necessary to be consciously confess every possible sin for it to be forgiven true because it says if we walk in the light as he is in the light the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us from all sin that's right because otherwise people become introspective and they think well what sin do I <laughs> am I missing here okay true. okay thank you Coralie uh, Scott
3: We we're just wondering what you might say as far as those who are in the catholic church for example that become saved truly saved and then stay in the catholic church
1: for years and years and years
0: yeah there are i've heard of that and in some cases they think they're they they think they're going to convert the catholic church and, and that's not how it's set up because they don't have it's a hierarchy that has everything comes from the top down and so a person sitting there in the pew is not going to con- convert what's going on up here. Now, uh, here's what I here's what would happen and this is true for anybody. Let's just take an uh, uh, Episcopal or a liberal you know PCUSA or whatever. There's all kinds of liberal churches in the, in the world. And if you are converted you hear the gospel and you are converted, and you're a long time member in in a liberal church, or as you the case here a Catholic Church, the thing that must be contemplated is whether or not you are sitting under the means of grace that ter- that is so so important uh, The more I study theology, the more i that idea is uh, so meaningful to me, and what I mean by that is Every true believer wants to be conformed to the image of Christ. God gives us a desire to be like Jesus, all right? And if I'm in a church that will never help me do that, but actually hinder it by preaching air, robbing me of the means of grace, which is the Word, and uh, the, the, uh, I don't use the term sacraments, although some people do. I, we talk about ordinances. But the ordinances are observed according to the Lord's institution. That's what the Reformers said. Now, in the ordinances, according to Luther, are the word visible. Okay, so it's all the word is the key means of grace. And I'm going to read something about that from a, from a little article. So if you're sitting in a church and are robbed of the means of grace, that's why a lot of you left secret churches. Is that not yeah, I know some of some of you who are new of were in, in churches where they took the means of grace away from you. They said, Well, this church no longer exists for the sake of the body of Christ. It now exists for the sake of the community. And the community is not interested in the means of grace. In fact, it means nothing to them. So therefore, we're going to entertain people in the community and rob the true church of the means of grace. And and so you could talk about the Catholic Church, but talk about any—you could It can be some uh, evangelical denomination where you're robbed of the means of grace. You're not going to grow. It says, "Desire ye the, the pure milk of the word that you might grow thereby." Amen. And it, it, it was—it it was even worse. It, you know, think of how terrible it'd be to rob a baby of of formula or milk or whatever. Well, do you think it's any less terrible to rob a newborn babe of Christ from the means of growth? And given the fact that our spiritual well-being is even more important than our physical, it's even worse. Okay? So that's, and if you're listening on the Internet, um, I I hope the pastors can get this concept down. And I'm going to read something uh, from Michael Horton where he has a fabulous article called Creatures of the Word. But if you know how God works, that's what you do. You you, you put it out there. Now, so I would say to anyone, if you're in a church that's robbed you of the means of grace, you're not in a church that's defined biblically. You're in a social institution that exists for some other reason other than Jesus Christ's idea of what the church is there for. And so you have to find the means of grace, which means the Word is purely taught and the ordinances are practiced according to the Lord's institution. And Ryan has walked, talked about this many times. Oh, okay. <laughs> See, I'm un—I'm unca- very uncanny about robbing Ryan of his sermon before he gets to it. All right. Okay, okay, Nicole.
3: <laughs> I just wanted to respond really quick to what the man had mentioned about uh, was, people uh, who get yeah. saved that are still in the Catholic Church for years. Yeah. And I was brought up in the Catholic Church, and I i, I got saved when I was about 12, and um I left I left the Catholic Church at about 18 when I moved out of my parents, um, but I continued to help out with um, a group of friends that were Catholics, and they were running retreats for kids at a retreat center in Stillwater, and it was one of the retreat centers I went to, and I had an, a, an emotional attachment to these people and, and to this retreat center and things like that. There were things that God really did use to speak to me, but... Over time, as I grew in my understanding of grace and reading and studying the Bible on my own, I got more and more and more uncomfortable with things in the Catholic Church. And I prayed and I'm like, Lord, do I just walk away from this group? Do, it, do you want me to still help out at these retreats and, and then just you know, share the gospel with them as much as possible? But then right smack in these retreats was a mass that they would have. And I and for a while I was like, okay, well, maybe I just won't go to the mass, but I'll help out with the rest of the retreat. But then I thought, well, now I'm totally contradicting a message I'm bringing to these kids because they'll be like, well, how come you don't come to the mass? And then I'm like, well, should I take communion? No, I won't. And then I I was reading the Bible one day when I was struggling with that question. And I don't I mean, I don't want to take any verses out of context, but there was a verse I read that said, don't eat food, sacrificed to idols and it just hit me between the eyes and i thought i can't do this anymore as much as i love these people and i shared it with my friends who were on the staff i said this is the truth this is what the gospel says we're completely contradicting our message to the kids when we have mass in the middle of the retreat you know and they just said oh we're so sorry nicole you you've lost you've lost it you've lost the way and i lost some close friends but I gained a whole family of true friends and believers when I made that decision.
0: We need the family of God. Did you ever read your verse, Sam? Oh, okay. (laughs) When when you're done, give it to Sam and he's going to read his verse.
1: And not just uh, don't eat foods that are sacrificed to
0: idols, but don't eat foods that are idols. (laughs) (laughs) See, I knew you'd have something to say eventually, Rich. I can count on you. Um, I'm reading
1: Colossians one twenty two. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach.
0: Yeah. So there's this idea of presenting the church as holy, presenting the church before him, and so that's what our passage here is saying that He will raise us up and present us, present us with you. So there's this presentation of a holy church that's given to the Son who bought the church with His blood. Is that a beautiful concept? I was going to read a little bit from my friend Garland here. Paul speaks boldly because his faith reveals to him that beyond earthly tribulation lies the assurance that God will resurrect him. Those who belong to Christ and experience His living power in this life will also belong to Him on the other side of death and will therefore be raised with Him. Those conformed to His death in this life will also experience the same vindication in resurrection, Philippians 3, 10, and 11. As Christ's death brought us life, so Christ's resurrection makes possible the life to come. All of Paul's apostolic ministry of proclamation is grounded in his faith Certainty of the final outcome, his resurrection after death, firmly based on Christ's past resurrection and what can be called a gathering forever of all Christians with Jesus in the presence of God. So, uh, remember, Paul said in First Corinthians 15 that we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we're most to be pitied. And that verse right there destroys all of the self help versions of Christianity. All right? It, it, it totally refutes. Uh, who's who's this guy writing these books your best life now, your best self, your best yeah, now so how did the future hope of resurrection get taken out of Christianity oh, well we still believe it, we just don't think that's worthy of preaching on well then, here's the question if we don't think it's worthy of preaching on why did Paul waste so much time preaching on the resurrection well obviously he wasn't wasting time So we're not following the apostolic example if we don't preach uh, emphatically the things that are emphatic in the Scripture. Now let's go here. I had some more stuff, but I want to get to this verse, at least get started on verse 15. This passage here just blew me away as I was using some of my tools (laughs) to dig around in the Greek and 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 so on as i was looking at this passage i had never seen the implications of this passage until this last week it says here verse 4 15 for all things are for your sake so that in this hina in the greek in order that it's a purpose clause in order that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound in the glory of god now There's a little difficulty in the translation. The word people is not in the Greek. So it says uh, um, through the more or through the many. So the grace is spreading. And and the word uh, for spreading there means to superabound. So grace is, is being spread or abounding or superabounding to the many through Paul's sufferings. Now his sufferings are connected with his gospel preaching. Paul, in fact, if you read Acts, it becomes obvious that if Paul wanted to quit suffering, all he had to do is quit preaching the gospel. All of his sufferings were caused by gospel preaching and nothing else, because he was continually under attack by both Jew and Gentile. Now he says that he's willing to go through all of this suffering and even be rejected by. The Corinthians, because we read a passage a week or two ago where he says, "I'm willing to love, uh, even though the more I love, the less I be loved." Uh, and so Paul's suffering, he says, "Here's why I'm doing this: by by continuing to press forward with the gospel, grace is superabounding to the many, and thereby." Thereby, in a sense, thinking oh i 'm going to do it again, right, <laughs> thinking about the means of grace, he says literally here that gospel preaching is a means of grace to the elect who are not yet converted., Amen. and that God has many people. remember, remember what it said in, he was going to go to a city, and the Lord says, "I have many people there?" Well, he didn 't have them yet. Okay, but by Paul going in spite of being stoned or, or shipwrecked or what all happened to him, the many people the Lord had in that city come and uh, come to faith through grace, and so grace super abounds as we go forward. So, uh, maybe think of a one of a fine article I read a couple of months ago called "Creatures of the Word" by Michael Horton, and he he is. Uh, I'm, I'm going to give you just a little taste of what he says. And I, I had made a PDF of this, so I went back and found it on my computer. It's from um, Modern Reformation, March, April 2007. And, and I'm obviously I can't read this whole thing, but I want to just give you some paragraphs from Horton because this is exactly what he was saying. So this it should just light a fire under us for gospel preaching because that's the means by which... Grace superabounds to the many. The many are whoever the Lord is going to save. Now, I'm just going to read some paragraphs. Bear with me and he, because he's going to make some distinctions and why the Reformation had a different understanding of the Scripture than Rome did. Okay? So I'm going to start right at the beginning, read three paragraphs, then I'm just a few sentences after that. We're quoting Michael Horton. The modern age sees Martin Luther as a hero for standing up. To the might of both Pope and Emperor with his famous trial at Worms. Here I stand. Yet such admirers often forget that the German reformer was not inaugurating a new era of the enlightened and autonomous individual. We recognize that simply by noticing the basis for his lonely stand, after allowing that he could be refuted by Scripture, Luther declared, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Here I stand. God help me. So he wasn't standing on Martin Luther. He was standing on the Word of God. Uh, Now, now, uh, let's go on here. It was because he stood under the Word that Luther felt compelled to stand against the church of his day. One of the critical insights of the Reformation was that that the church is the creatura verbi. It's Latin, creatura verbi. And that (laughs) means the creation of the Word. The church is the creation of the Word. Whereas Rome held that the church was the mother of the word, bearing the twin offspring of Scripture and tradition, the Reformers reasserted the priority of the word over the church. <coughs> Excuse me. Like the word that called into being a world that did not exist, the word of the gospel calls into being an elect, redeemed, justified, and renewed people drawn from every people and place in the world. However, the Reformers' notion of the church as the creature verbi was asserted not only against Rome, but against Anabaptism, which, especially in its more radical version, sharply distinguished between the outer word of the Scripture and preaching from the inner word of the Spirit's supposed direct and immediate speaking. This movement the Reformers dubbed enthusiasm from the Greek compound en, in, and theos, God because it gave the impression that his members were so filled with God, particularly the Spirit, that they did not need an external authority, text, or even an official ministry of preaching and sacrament. So that was the enthusiast, and you should read Luther's indictment of them. He he waxed eloquent against them, and so so did Calvin. Now, one more paragraph, and then a few statements here. Today, this is important again, today we have a remarkably similar situation. On the one hand, we had three centuries of enthusiasm against the claims of either Pope or Scripture. The Enlightenment lodged sovereign authority in the self. Historians have often noted that parallels between the inner light of the medieval mystic, radical enthusiast and Quaker, and the Enlightenment of the Age of Reason. Whereas God's Word calls us out of ourselves to hear the divine summons The search for enlightenment calls us deeper into ourselves to see the vision of light and glory that that we can determine and possess for ourselves. Some people think they can read the Bible not only for themselves but by themselves as if they could have a purely private relationship with God. But preaching is social. It creates a covenant community. Preaching creates a covenant community. It calls forth a people out of darkness. And when they're called into the marvelous light, they're called together. Amen. They're called together. I just, now, now, just a few sentences, okay? He says, Confronted with the usurpation of the speaker of the house position by the church and the individual, we need to reassert the sovereignty of God speaking through His Word. The alternative is not autonomy, but captivity to other lords who cannot liberate. So, whoever is speaking for God becomes our Lord. So, if it's some inner light that the mystics follow, if it's some church hierarchy or whatever, it's not, this is a false gospel, false light. But if the scriptures are asserted purely, if the word is purely taught, then the true authority of God comes to bear on our lives. And he he goes on to say that this isn't just authority, this is enablement. There is grace in this. Now, a couple more sentences, then Scott has something to say. Again, I'm quoting uh, another section from Horton. The Word of God written and preached is not simply legally authoritative and binding, but is the primary means of grace through which the Spirit ordinarily creates communion with Christ and therefore the communion of the saints, ecclesia, that is, the called out ones. So, uh, one more sentence. Although there can be no saving personal covenantal encounter apart from information and assertions of fact, the word in this sense is much more living and active than that. It not only tells us what God has done, but it does what God tells. Wow. It not only tells us what God does, it does what God tells. And isn't that exactly what Paul just said here? for all things or for your sake, so that, in order that, that's a strong purpose clause in the Greek, the grace will superabound. And the sufferings in and of themselves weren't what was causing grace to abound, it was the the preaching that caused the sufferings. The preaching of the Word. So, I'm telling you, uh, dear ones, that I, I having seen this, I didn't used to understand this, all right, for 20 years, I've you know 10, 15 years, I guess, 15 to 20 years. there was a transition period where I started to understand it, in the late 80s, early 90s. But I've never seen it so clearly. But early in my ministry, I would give. I was always coming up with seven points of how to. My sermons were almost all application with some scripture. Application, application, application. Now, why was it like that? Because I believed that people's problems were based on not knowing what to do. And so I was, in a sense, a first cousin to that old steen that writes these books, but I didn't know it, theologically. I mean, I just didn't know it, because that's just how I looked at it. I said, well, they need to know how to overcome anger. They need to know how to get rid of fear. They need to know how to do this. And so how to, how to, how to, how to. And, and, and frankly, seeing very, very little fruit as far as people's lives actually changing. And when I realized that we're creatures of the Word and that God changes lives by grace, not by works. See, see it isn't salvation by grace and sanctification by works. It's salvation by grace through faith and it's sanctification by grace through faith. And so if the Word superabounds in grace to the many in order to create the community of the redeemed, the Word superabounds... To the redeemed, to the newborn babes in Christ, and we, we say that our whole Christian lives, by the way, we, 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 because that when, when, when uh, Peter said, as newborn babes in Christ desire the sincere milk of the word, he applied that to the entire church. Would you agree, Ryan? Not, mm-hmm. He's not saying just those of you happen to be new. He said, this is who you are. And so we never get over being a newborn babe in Christ. And so we, so we continue to grow our old Christian lives through the Word, not through something else as we get older. Now, knowing that, I and Ryan and all of you that minister to one another or teach a Bible study or get together and open the Scriptures, we do so believing that if we get the meaning of the Scripture to the people with, with authority, that this is what God has said, and here's what it means... And then there are many ways it can be applied, but that the process of the hearing of the word and the understanding of the word, it may not seem like a great thing to you, but wait until you see what God does in your life. You will change. You will grow. You are a creature of the word, and the word of God is sharp and powerful. It can divide asunder the thoughts and intents of our heart. The thoughts and intents of our heart are wicked other than what God does by grace, and that word pierces in there and cuts out a lot of bad ones. Okay, Scott, and then Gretchen.
3: Um, This uh, video that I sent you a link to, I don't know if you saw it yet, but uh, it was uh, from Solomon's Porch, and on there, Doug Pageant, one of the things that's said in there is Doug Pageant himself is saying, we believe everyone has a right to speak for God. (laughs)
0: Well, only in as much as you speak the words of God from Scripture.
3: Thank you for uh, preaching now and teaching us about the efficacy of the Word. Uh, Grace abounds in me because now, through coming to this church, I understand the power of the Word of God. And in getting grounded in that and finding, uh, searching in the Bible for answers to daily problems, daily questions in my life, I hope that the efficacy abounds in the, in the people that I come in contact with. I work with so many Muslims. I, I read in a puzzle today, the answer to last Sunday's crossword puzzle, New Age movements, they start out with tarot, this, this, and the other thing. There are so many false gods out there. And if I stand on the Word of God, I'm going
2: gonna, I'm gonna to help that process. Amen. I hope.
0: Yeah. Amen, Gretchen. As, as you stand for the Word of God... Grace spreads to more and more so this isn't just true because Paul was Paul it's true because the word is the word Amen. and so the word on your lips has the same effect as it did on Paul's. It's the same gospel okay so all things are for your sake now so Paul's suffering and, and Paul could have abandoned he could have separated from the Corinthian church he could have he could have said, listen, I lay down my life I love you more, you love me the less I come in. Uh, preach the gospel to you. A church was born in Corinth because I preached the gospel to you. As soon as I go away, in come the super-apostles, the hyper-spiritual ones that said, that, look at Paul. He's not very spiritual. He's, he's, he's despicable. He, he's got bad motives. He just wants your money. They, they, they said everything under the sun to trash Paul in front of the Corinthians. And the Corinthians believed the false teachers. And so then he had to write this severe letter and and, and then plan a trip, and I, I gave you the background early in 2 Corinthians, and he kept back, going back to them because he didn't want to see them lost to the false religious movements. Okay? And so he could have just said, you know what? I gave you your chance. You don't want to listen to me. I'm just going to turn you over. Sometimes At some point, that does happen, by the way. There is a turning somebody over to their own ways and just wash your hands of it. But he didn't do it. He, he basically did it with the Galatians. He called them, anathematized them, called them fools. But he, he, but he, he wanted to redeem uh, something of this work in the Corinthians. So he endured all things, including their rejection of him. He went to a people that were rejecting him because he wanted to see grace abound more and more. Because God was, he had the truth to speak to them. People converted by God's grace give thanks to God and God is glorified. Let's look at the rest of this verse. Uh, grace is spreading the more and more, the, the uh, New American Standard says people, but literally uh, through the many. Um, and what, what is the point of, call, of God calling out of the mass of perdition of people for Himself? well, here's what it says, "...may cause the giving of a thanks to abound..." Here's another word like that. "...to abound to the glory of God." And so, as a truly redeemed people who are creatures of the Word, we were born again of precious... uh, the precious Word of God through God's grace. Then we give thanks to God because He saved us. And in the giving of thanks... Um, and in God's work of grace in his church, uh, this abounds to God's glory. This is all for God's glory. That's right. so, so there's the solace. Christ alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And so faith is abounding only to the glory of God, because it wasn't us, it wasn't our cleverness, or anything else. Uh,
1: Hyper-Calvinists who say, why
0: preach the Word? Should read this verse.
1: So that verse would pretty much refute what they're
0: saying. Absolutely. That that verse right there should be the end of hyper-Calvinism. It basically
1: says it says the same thing as Paul does in 2 Timothy where He says, I endure all things
0: for the sake of the elect. Look that one up. 2 Timothy 2.10. Yes?
1: In, in Isaiah... God says, I give my glory to no one, and I give my praise not to idols. Well, the churches are full of idols. I have to mention Mother's Teresa's last will and testimony. I don't know if any of you heard it. She even doubted, in the end, there was a God. You see, she's doing all this suffering, and a lot of evangelists give her credit, but I'm going to just tell her like it is. She did all this suffering, in the end not knowing. With the woman at the well, God says, Jesus, says, are you greater than the patriarch?'" He she says this water God says this water you drink you will thirst again. The water I give will be living water. And that's what Mother Teresa never got, is living water. So when these people are dying, the in India, Hindus, 150, not them about Jesus because she didn't know about Jesus herself. She never had the living water, and she needed the living water. I've talked to other nuns like her, and they asked me to pray for her to get her into heaven. I said, I can't get you into heaven. You know Mary's testimony. My soul does magnify the Lord. Go to Jesus Christ, he says, I am the way, the truth. Peter's testimony, no name under heaven whereby a man must be saved. We need Jesus Christ, the light. You know what? We say we never be like the ten lepers. The only one come back to thank God. Yes we are. We, God has saved us. We were lepers and sin, and we went our way. But we have come back, like Apostle Paul, to give the glory to God. No matter how mad, no matter how much your neighbor hates you, no matter how much they get upset, you're coming back to thank God you give him all the glory. And what's happening today is the praise is going to these idols in these churches. All glory is the Lord's. Yeah.
0: Okay, Dan. We'll give, we'll, give, we'll give God the glory. <laughs> all right. Uh, Now you know why I don't hand him to Mike. (laughs) (laughs) This one works just fine from afar. Okay, well, Ryan is going to read a passage that's really like a twin brother to 2 Corinthians 4.15. Yes.
1: For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory.
0: (laughs) There you go. So Paul is looking at his missionary journeys and his preaching as enduring all things for the sake of the many people God has in that city. And the preaching of the gospel. So the preaching of gospel is a means of grace for salvation. Amen. Because that's what it says in our passage. In order that grace may superabound. All right? And what does it do is it, 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 to the many? The many is an interesting phrase in the Greek, but you see the word the many in Romans 5 as well. The many, right? And it's an allusion to Isaiah 53. Ryan and I think so much the same as scary. <laughs> Every once in a while, I don't have time to answer a theological question in email, so I send it to Ryan, and he sends me a copy when he does it. It's exactly what I would have said. It's, I don't know. It's either really bad or really good. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully it's a good thing. we got the same Bible we're reading from, right? So, yeah, the many is an allusion to Isaiah 53. Now, what does it say in Isaiah 53 about the many? Let's, well, let's look it up. Here, hold it. Oh, here. Robert, I need a free hand. Let's go to Isaiah 53 and see where this concept of the many comes from. That's what's so great about these tools that I have now, the Logo software, I can find these gems. They're there. They're there in the Greek. And if you see them, it, it, it reminds you of Scriptures. Isaiah 53. It says... Is that is verse 12? 11. Here it is. As the result... And this is talking about the suffering servant, which we know to be Messiah. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge... The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. The many. And so Paul talks about the many in several places, including this passage we're looking at. So the the many are the ones that will be justified by the work of Messiah on the cross. And the means by which God's great justifying grace comes to the many is through the proclamation of the word. And so, we indeed, as Michael Horton says, are creatures of the Word. And therefore, we should never ever allow anything to push the clear, pure teaching of the Word to the side in the church. That has to be battle number one. We cannot allow the preaching of the Word to be taken out of the church under any circumstance.